Thanks, Matty. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. In a moment, I'm going to share some thoughts on John chapter 17, which we just had the last little section read for us. And then I'm going to try and finish early today. I'm hoping to finish at about 22. Uh, because what we're then going to do is we're going to hear from some people, some EU people who are going to go on some end-of-year mission trips with the EU. Uh, because we, there's about 160 EU students who are going to go on mission trips to 15 different locations uh, in December. And we're keen to pray for those people as they go out taking the Gospel of Jesus to 15 different churches all across Sydney and further afield. So we're going to spend some time doing that at the end of today. So my goal is to make sure we get to about 22 and then I'll sit down and we'll spend a little bit of time doing that and then we'll still get up early for afternoon tea together. That's the plan. But it's particularly good that we're doing John 17 this week, the same week that we want to pray for the EU students going out on mission. I'll tell you why. Because when we choose locations for the EU mission teams, we deliberately choose places that are less reached with the Christian gospel or less resourced to do gospel ministry. We don't just choose any church that would like to have us. We deliberately go to places that are less reached with the gospel or less resourced with the gospel. We call it LRLR. And if you've been around in the EU for a while, you've probably heard us talk about that. And the reason that the EU is so committed to serving the less reached and the less resourced is because we have a real sense of our opportunity and of the wider need. If you are a Christian and you've been coming along to the EU for, I don't know, just this year or for a number of years, or maybe you've grown up in a church, particularly in Sydney, the chances are that you've been going to a church where you've learnt about Jesus. And you might say, well, that's nothing surprising. Surely when you go to church, you learn about Jesus. May I say that there's lots and lots of churches that bear the name of Jesus but don't actually talk much about Jesus and don't open the Christian Bible. A friend of mine, earlier this year, this is not ancient history, earlier this year, moved with his wife to Adelaide and they were attending a particular denomination here in Sydney. I'm not going to say which one it was. But when they went to Adelaide, they said, well, we'll look for a church of that same denomination to be part of now that we're living in Adelaide. So they went to a whole bunch of churches in their particular Christian denomination in Adelaide and when they came to hearing the, 
you know, the talk in the, in the church service, what you might think is going to be the Bible talk or you might call it a sermon. No one talked about Jesus. No one talked about the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, well, what did they talk about then? But actually, when you move outside of the wider Sydney zone and you just go to whatever church, it might, uh, you know, Christian church of whatever flavour you like, there's no guarantee, actually, that people are going to teach the Bible and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, in lots of churches around this country, you won't hear the Bible taught and you won't hear much about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the actual reality. And if you're not aware of that, then you really are living inside a very closed, myopic bubble. Because we as the EU are aware of the wider need, not just across the rest of Australia, but in the whole of the wider world, because we're aware that there are so many places that are less reached with the Christian gospel and less resourced for doing gospel ministry because the Bible is not taught. We're convinced of that need. We're also aware of the opportunity that we have as tertiary educated well-resourced Christians to do something about that particular need. So we don't talk about the less reached, less resourced out of guilt. We don't talk about the less reached, less resourced out of uh, compulsion. We talk about it out of the gospel freedom and out of love. That we're aware of this wider need. We're aware of the riches that God has given us. And we're we're aware of the difference that any one of us could make to a church that's less reached or less resourced with the Christian gospel message. You've been attending an evangelical church for the last, you know, four or five years of your life as you come, say, towards the end of your university degree. You've been coming along to the EU hearing the Bible taught. You have heard more Bible, you know the Bible better than many, many Christians around this country. And you could make a massive difference in any of those churches, just by going and being there, leading a Bible study, running the youth group, teaching kids' church, running a ministry to bring the gospel to elderly people. Like, there's any number of things that you, you could do. Or you could be the 15th piano player in the music group at your particular church, rostered on once in a full full moon. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's... There is a massive disparity of resources for gospel work around the world. And because we're aware of that in the EU, we're committed to talking and thinking and praying about the less reached and the less resourced. So this talk, as I hope every Bible talk does because it's God's word, but this talk could change your life. It could change the shape and direction of your life, maybe. Because we're only thinking about the less reached and the less resourced today. Okay, so that's a little bit about why we're doing this and how it fits with John 17. It fits with John 17 really, really well, this idea of serving the less reached and the less resourced, and I hope to try to draw that out to you. If you've got your Bible open, it'd be really helpful. We're looking at this particular section of John's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and we're jumping back in here to John 17, so just to sort of set the scene for you, this comes in a section of John's story about Jesus, his account of Jesus' life, that starts in chapter 13 and finishes 
here in chapter 17. It's a climactic moment in Jesus' life and ministry. Why? Because what's happening? Well, the next day he is going to die for the sins of the world. The next day he will be executed by the Romans. And so what is, what is happening on this particular night, this night before he's about to die? Well, several things have happened. If you go right back to chapter 13 and trace it through, I'll let me refresh your memories. In chapter 13, Jesus met with his closest disciples, those who'd been with him for the last two and a half years, and he washed their feet as an example of sacrificial love. And then he told his disciples that he was setting them an example that they now should go and do likewise, live in sacrificial love for others. He then indicated that Judas, one of the 12 disciples, that Judas would betray him, and he then actually sent Judas out to do that very thing. Such was Jesus' conviction that everything that was about to happen was actually in the plan of his loving and good Heavenly Father. He's told his disciples that he is about to die, he is about to leave them, but he told them not to be distressed because he's about to send the Holy Spirit to be with them, to be in them and that they are to remain in him and in his teaching. So he gave them words of comfort, but also words of warning, words of encouragement. Having done all of those things in this one evening, Jesus now prays. Here is Jesus at this pivotal moment. He knows he's about to die the next day. What does he do? He prays. He commits all of this to his heavenly Father. Now, I don't know if you've got your Bible open. Does your Bible have little headings in it that the editors, the publishers have put in there to sort of separate? Have a look if you've got a Bible there with headings. Mine has three headings for this chapter. Jesus prays for himself, I'm told. Jesus prays for his disciples. And Jesus prays for all believers. Those as headings for the sections of Jesus' prayer, they're not bad, but they're not that good either, actually. I think part of the problem with those headings is that they miss how everything that Jesus prays for here is related to this particular moment that he's up to. It's all, his prayer is all related to this pivotal moment. What we see here is that Jesus' prayer is all about his mission from the Father. That's what this prayer is about in different ways. Jesus' mission from the Father, which is coming to a climax with his death the next day. So let's have a look at the three sections of this prayer. The first section is there in verses 1 to 5. Rather than calling it Jesus prays for himself, which is what my Bible has done, I reckon something more accurate might be Jesus prays for his Father to be glorified. I think that's actually what's going on here. But let me try and show that to you. You can see Jesus' prayer there, in halfway through verse 1. Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. Now, if you've been reading right throughout John's account of Jesus' life and teaching and ministry, we've been waiting for this hour. It started right back there in, Genesis, in, uh, Genesis, in John chapter 2. Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. And he said it repeatedly all the way through. And now he's saying, Father... The hour has come. Here is the hour. What is the hour? It's the hour of his glorification. Glorify your son, he says. This is his prayer. Everything that has been waiting for is now about to happen. How is Jesus going to be glorified? So I'm trying to represent this prayer by this diagram, this picture here on the board. 
for good or for ill. Hopefully for good. Here's Jesus. He's praying. He's praying. That's why he's looking up, right? He's praying. What's the first part of his prayer? Glorify your son. That is glorify me, as he says explicitly in verse 5. Glorify me. How is, how is the Son, how is Jesus going to be glorified by the Father? Well, His hour has come. What's the hour? We know from John's Gospel, the hour is the hour that He's going to be lifted up, is how He talks about it earlier. The hour where He's lifted up. Lifted up in what sense? Lifted up in being lifted up on the cross. The moment where He's going to die for the sins of the world. Lifted up also, in a way, in His resurrection. The Father is going to lift him up out of the dead, out of the grave. He's going to be lifted up. But not only that, he's going to be brought back to life, but he's going to be lifted up. <laughs> he's going to be lifted up in the, what we call the ascension. He's going to be taken back to the presence of his Father. He's going to be... This lifting up, in a way, is... It's all of those. This, together, is his, the moment, the hour of his glorification. As he dies for the sins of the world, as he's raised to new eternal life, as he's lifted by his Father to his right hand, where he rules supreme as Lord. This is the glorification. Jesus is saying, the hour has come. Do it, Father. Glorify your Son, knowing that this, is what that will mean. That's the first little part of his prayer. Why does he pray this prayer, though? Glorify... He prays it. This is really interesting. Have a look there in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Ultimately, this section of the prayer is not about Jesus. It's actually about the Father. Glorify your Son, says Jesus. Yes, glorify me, so that I might glorify you you. This section of Jesus' prayer is all about the Father and the Father's glory. I'm going to read it out to you. Notice the emphasis that Jesus has in this prayer on His Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted Him authority over all people that He might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays for his own glorification, only so that ultimately the Father might be glorified. Jesus is being radically other person-centred here, which is why the heading, Jesus prays for himself, sort of doesn't really capture it. He's actually saying, glorify me, yes, fulfil your plan so that you might be glorified. Now, how, how is this going to glorify the Father? Well, have a look at verses 2 and 3 there. Jesus' glorification through his death and resurrection and ascension as Lord what that does is that secures eternal life. He says, you've given the Son all authority over all people so that He might give eternal life to those you've given Him. The whole point of this is that Jesus can then, having secured it, He can pour out eternal life according to the Father's plan. 
as He pours out eternal life on people, glory goes to God the Father because it's His plan of salvation that is coming to fruit. So, Jesus is praying, fulfill your plan, Father, to bring eternal life through me and so bring glory to yourself. This, I think this is really helpful that Jesus prays this because so often we live with a very short-sighted vision. So often we just, we even misunderstand the Christian faith. Now, I don't want to sound too weird when I say this, but the Christian faith is, is, is not all about Jesus. I mean, it is all about Jesus, but ultimately, it's about God the Father. Isn't that Jesus' prayer here? Glorify me so that I might glorify you. That's Jesus' prayer. And he's not alone in that. You can find that in other places in the New Testament. If you go to, say, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how everything has to be placed under the Son's feet so that the Son, Jesus, might pass all the things back to the Father so that God might be all in all, Paul says. The really big picture here is the glory of God the Father that we should be bringing Him glory in all things. Why? Because God, the one true living God, He is worthy of all glory. You know that well-known verse probably in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That is, when you look at the heavens, you look at the sky, when you see those astounding astronomy pictures, you know, of the nebulae or nebulas or whatever they are, and, you know, the, the stars and the planets... You see all that, it's amazing, right? But the heavens, the skies, are declaring what? The glory of God. That is, what you're seeing there is just a shadow, just a little glimpse of the even greater glory of the one true living God. If you're wowed by those things, imagine being wowed by the actual glory of the one true living God. The heavens declare the glory of God. But even more, God has ultimately revealed His glory where? In His Son, Jesus. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. Where do you have knowledge of the glory of God? You have it in the face of Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you really see the glory of God, when you see His character, His compassion, His mercy, His faithfulness, His justice. And where do we see God's glory manifest most clearly in Jesus? In this hour of His glorification, as He is lifted up in death and resurrection and ascension. Because here you see God's character, don't you? You see His love, you see His justice, You see His power, you see His sovereignty, you see His rule, you see the glory of God manifest in the face of Jesus in this hour of His glorification. God is glorified in His plan of salvation, achieved in His Son, poured out on us, who He's given us this life to through faith. Do you have the big vision of your life, that your life, every part of your life is for the glory 
of God the Father. That's what everything's about. That's what your life and my life should be about. And what, is, what do we learn in this little section here? We learn here that God is particularly glorified when people come to eternal life. I sent a text message to some of the EU staff earlier in the week and just said, look, send me a message just telling me the different people who've become Christians in the different faculties that you've been ministering this year. And I sent the message like at three minutes to nine, I think on Wednesday morning, and I... The, the wonderful thing, unexpected, I just didn't think about this, the wonderful thing was, for the next 15 minutes, my phone just kept going, beep, 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 beep. It just, I just kept getting all these texts of different people who've become Christians here on campus. I just randomly picked, you know, one, you know, Lauren from the Com, Douglas from Law, um, or James, Shirley, Stella, Renz, Kylie from Science First Year, Darren from Engineering, and the list keeps going on, right? There's all these people who've become Christians on campus this year as we've proclaimed the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's awesome, right? That's fantastic. And glory has gone to God the Father because when people come to eternal life, glory goes to Him. God has been glorified here in our midst this year. Okay, so that's the first little section of the prayer. Second section goes from verse 6 to verse 19. What does Jesus pray for next? Jesus prays next. He prays for this little group of disciples that he's meeting with, those who are there sharing this evening with him, who are listening to him pray. He prays for them. What do you reckon he might pray for them? Well, what he prays for, he prays for their protection. He prays for their protection. It's interesting, Jesus here, I think, is continuing to show his other person-centeredness. He showed his other person-centeredness in the first part of the prayer by not praying for himself, even though he's the one who's about to die. He's actually ultimately praying for glory to go to God the Father. He prays here, not for himself, but he prays for his disciples because he knows he's concerned out of love, he's going to leave them. He knows he's going to leave them. He's been telling them that this very night. And I think you can see here in his prayer his concern, his loving concern for them. How are they going to fare? Because frankly, these disciples have not been that impressive on the, on, you know, the account of John's Gospel. And John is pretty honest eyewitness. He's one of these guys. He's, he's not dressing it up nicely. He's just saying a lot of the time we didn't really understand what the heck Jesus meant. And it was only after his glorification... And he explained things to us that then we sort of got it. But this is a very faltering bunch of disciples. So Jesus understandably is concerned for them. What's he concerned for them about, particularly? What's, what's his particular anxiety? His concern is, will they stick with Jesus' message? Will, he, will they stick with the truth that Jesus has actually given them? Will they hold to the teaching that he shared with them over the next over the last two and a half years? You can see this here in the, have a look at the prayer. He starts by talking to his father about these disciples. He says in verse 6, I have revealed you or your name to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. 
for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. What's his prayer? That God the Father would protect them. He says, as I have pro- I've protected them, now I'm leaving, so I need you to protect them. How has Jesus protected them? What's he done? Well, what he's done is he's helped teach them the truth constantly over two and a half years. Every time they were tempted to do something else, every time they were tempted to wander from that way or be uh, persuaded by sort of false views of the world, Jesus was there and could correct them, call them back to the truth, rebuke them if necessary. But now now he's leaving. Now he wants the Father to do that work for them. He commits them into the Father's care. Now, why do I say that protecting them is about staying in the truth, keeping in Jesus' word? Let me show that to you. In this section of the prayer, Jesus, Jesus sort of gives three outcomes that he's looking for in this particular prayer. He says this, but I think there are three things that are actually trying to say the same thing, three ways of saying the same thing. The first one is there in verse 11. So that they may be one as we are one. Now, think about that, that they may be one as we, that is, Jesus and his heavenly Father, as we are one. In what sense is Jesus and the Father one? Whatever, however you answer that, that's how he wants these people to be one, right? That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is down in verse 13, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Well, what's that mean? The full measure of my joy within them. Well, here you've got to go back to something Jesus said earlier this evening, back in John chapter 15, where he talked about, he encouraged them to keep his commandments. And in the middle of saying, keep my commandments, he then says, if you keep my commandments, then my joy will be in you. So having Jesus' joy within you is related to this idea of holding to his teaching, keeping to his commands. The third way he says it is down in verse 17, and maybe this is the clearest. He says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. To sanctify means to, just means to set something apart as special. Distinguish it from other things. Set it apart. So set them apart by the truth. Your word is the truth. That is, These disciples need to be set apart from the world, the world that hates them, the very world that they're being sent out into with this message, but set them apart by your truth. They will be characterised by your truth, which they get from God the Father's Word, which they've had mediated to them through Jesus the Son. These are three different ways, I think, of saying the same thing. He wants them to be set apart, sanctified by the truth, that they be protected in that way that they would stay faithful to what Jesus has revealed. That's what he's praying for here. Now, what's the third section of the prayer? 
Well, my Bible says Jesus prays for all believers. Let's have a look, see if that matches up. Verse 20, Jesus continues, My prayer is not for them, these guys alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That is, he is, as he's just prayed in the prayer, he's sending these guys out with his words, his message. They're going with the word of the Father. Jesus has spoken the words of the Father, spoken it to them, and now they're being sent out as the authorised eyewitnesses. You and I didn't get to walk around with Jesus for three years. They did. They're the authorised, inspired eyewitnesses. They're being sent out into the world with this message. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's praying here for everyone else who might believe in this message. He's praying for Christians all over the world. And then there's other places. (laughs) He's praying for all of those who would believe in his message. How many is that? Millions. And guess what? Oh, I don't know how to draw this. Sudden idea, bad idea. Look, what's that? The quad. Yes, it's the quad. (laughs) At Sydney Uni. And here's the EUers. Right? He is praying for everyone who believes, who has faith in response to this message. He's praying for everyone including you. Here you are. He prayed for you 2,000 years ago. Isn't that awesome? What did he pray for you? He prayed that together we would be one as he is one with the Father. What's that mean? It must be important. He prayed it for us. He prayed it for the first disciples too, that they would be one. What does this mean, being one? Now, this is the pin-up verse of a movement called ecumenicalism. That idea that Christians in all sorts of different places should put aside their theological differences and their particular denominations and just be one, one family together. Is that really what this is talking about? I don't think so. Because he says that they should be one, that they will be one as we are one. How is Jesus and the Father one? Well, the oneness that Jesus has talked about throughout John's Gospel is a oneness of words and action. It's a one that Jesus is the location, the locus of the Father's words and the locus of the Father's works. And now he's saying just as you are in me, that I might be in them, that his words would live in us, that his works would live in us. That's what this is about. 
It's about a oneness in his truth, in his words, in his works. That's the oneness that Jesus prays for. Now, how does any of that tie into LRLR stuff? Here it is. Do you notice what he says here? He says, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The oneness of Christians in his truth is part of God's evangelistic strategy. When Christians are one in his truth, the world believes that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. When Christians are one in the truth, the world says, look how you stick to this word of Jesus. Even though we think it's foolish and crazy, you stick to this word of Jesus, that is evidence pointing to his reality, that he is the one sent from God. And what's more, as we stick to that truth in the face of all the temptations of the world, in face of all the crazy things the world tells us to do that we should be doing, that we're not doing because we're sticking to Jesus' word, the world also says, you really believe that he loves you, don't you? (laughs) Because you're not driven by the fears and the insecurities and the desires the rest of us sort of are controlled by and driven by. You're, You're living a life of sacrifice. You're living a life of humility because you believe this is who Jesus is and you believe that he really loves you. The oneness of God's people, when we live like that together, that is part of God's evangelistic strategy. Then, Jesus says, the world will know that you've sent me and that you love them like you've loved me. So, how do we help those who are less resourced with the gospel? How do we help those less resourced with the gospel be one? Because you can't be one in God's truth if you don't know the truth. This is the key point. The reason we care about the less reached and the less resourced with the gospel is because if you don't spend time in God's word together, you can't be one in his truth. It won't shape your life together. It won't shape the way you think. It won't shape the decisions you make. It won't shape the way you relate to one another. When we go out from this place, when you finally finish your days at Sydney Uni, and you get a job, and you decide to go to a church, what church are you going to go to and why? Because you could go to a church which is less resourced with the gospel and you, if you know God's word, you can make a profound difference in helping God's people be one in his truth, which is part of God's evangelistic strategy to reach the world. I know the way we make decisions is normally finish uni, get a job, find somewhere to live that's close to work, find a church that fits in with where I live. I know that's how we make decisions. I know that's how your families encourage you to make decisions. Just for a moment, think, what might happen if we flipped it? If we actually said, is there a place I could, a a group of God's people I could be part of where I could make a difference, where I could help them be one in God's truth? Choose your church first. Then... Find somewhere to live close to that church. And then pray that God provide you with a job 
that will enable you to live there and be part of that church. What might happen? You know what might happen? We go from here into all of here, don't we? Because we flipped it. What will sacrificial love, what will awareness of the need, what will the awareness of the opportunity, what will that look like in your life? This is not about guilt, this is not about compulsion, this is about gospel generosity and freedom. But it might change your life. It might change what direction your life takes. So, we're now going to pray for some of our LR, LR teams and places they're going. So, as we just heard in the talk, all of life is about the glory of God the Father. And we are part of his evangelistic strategy to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim that Jesus is the true one sent from God. Accordingly, one of the objects of the EU is about this idea, the third object, and it reads, to ensure that Christians in the universities are made aware of the nature, needs, and challenges of Christian service at home and abroad. And as Rowan mentioned in the talk, one of the ways that we do that is by being on for the less drink and the less resource. Over summer, some of staff and students of the EU are going to be serving on missions, which is a great way of expressing our commitment to this value. As Rowan mentioned, the EU will be partnering with 15 churches, all of them LRLR in some capacity, and many of them in multicultural Sydney, um, from rural New South Wales, or even from interstate. So I would strongly encourage you guys to be praying for your peers as you go on mission, um, and we're going to be praying for that a little bit later today for those going on mission. But now we're going to hear a bit about mission, so I'm going to invite up Laura and Ethan, give them a clap. And we're going to hear a bit about what their mission will be like. So firstly, what is your name, your year, and your degree? I'm Ethan, and I'm a first-year arts media and communication student. So, uh, Ethan, you first. Uh, what mission are you going on? I'm going on Green Acre. And I'm going to Sydney Japanese Evangelical Church. And do you know anything about what those mission locations are like? Um, yeah, so Green Acre has quite a large Muslim population. I think it's about 42% of people in Green Acre profess to be of uh, Islamic faith. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hopefully God willing, having some gospel-centered conversations with some Muslims. Um, so the Sydney Japanese Evangelical Church is in Um, there is not a lot of people um, in my part of 
and what are some things that you're looking forward to about the trip? Yeah, as I said, really looking forward to hopefully having some good conversations. Um, there's also a member of my church who uh, left to go to Greenacre in order that he, have, he might have some more opportunities to have conversations with Muslims. So I'm really looking forward to reconnecting with him and learning from him about what it might mean to go somewhere that is less resourced and less reached. Thank you guys, that sounds really exciting. So we're going to pray now for those missions and all the missions, and also for us, as we think about how we in the future might be able to serve God in his kingdom throughout the whole world. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gospel. that we can know you and that we can be reconciled to you in relationship. Father, we thank you that Jesus is Lord, um, that he is Lord over all of creation, he is Lord over our lives and everyone in the whole world. Father, we thank you that we've been taught this gospel truth, that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, that in the EU we've been taught really well your truth. We thank you that you have been powerfully at work teaching us and helping us to submit every aspect of our lives under Jesus' Lordship. Father, help us to continue to learn that our lives are all about your glory, that you have included us, your people, in your plan for evangelism to the whole world, and that we might continue to pray and think about how we might be part of Father, we pray now for EU missions happening in summer of this year after exams. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have as a union to go on mission. Thank you for the 15 churches that are happy and willing to take us. And we thank you for the number of EUers who are keen to go on mission, to step outside their comfort zone and to share your gospel um, with people um, who haven't heard about Jesus before in communities that are less reached or churches that are less resourced in gospel working. Father, we ask that through the labours um, of EUers that your kingdom may grow, that it wouldn't just be a week um, and then um, a leaving, but that it would be, these EUers would be a real blessing to the church and that there might um, be some fruit born through their efforts. We pray that you might be at work in the hearts of EUers as they go on mission, um, that they might be considering they 
reach our last places, um, how you might be using them in the future to reach um, the world with your gospel. We ask that you might be teaching all of us your truth, that Jesus is Lord, growing us in love for one another and for the world. And we ask that you might be using your people powerfully to see your gospel go to Sydney, to Australia, and to the very ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.